Us, yes? Yes. Very good. Powerful lyrics. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys to sing it again, not now, but after the message, just because I think it fits really, really well with what we're talking about today. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. Uh, if you're not sure where Zephaniah is, uh, neither is about 99% of the uh, Christian world and 100% of the non-Christian world. So go ahead and go to Matthew and then go backwards, about four minor prophets. Zephaniah chapter 3. If you're going to follow along in your outline in your bulletin, you'll notice the title of the sermon this morning is God's Unchanging Salvific Provision. And my wife laughs at me. She laughs at, she laughs at you or laughs at me? Salvific. Well, very good. Uh, that's just a big word that fit well with the title of the message, and realistically it means salvation, the, the ways that God provides salvation. So don't be hung up by that word, and if you hear it throughout the rest of the message, that is what it means. Zephaniah chapter 3. Before we jump into God's word, I want to share a story. I've never served in any of the branches in the U.S. military. I've got good friends that have, relatives that have, many of you have as well, and I've got the utmost respect for all of you, for your service, your willingness to sacrifice, your mental, physical, spiritual fortitude that it must have taken to get through the rigors of training. And like I said, I've never experienced any of that training firsthand, but I've watched some movies, which probably don't do it justice, and I've uh, read some books also, which probably don't do it justice. This past week, I was uh, reading a little bit about the Navy SEAL training. And I heard, or at least I read, that that's the most difficult elite military training there is. Some, some would argue, but this is what the Navy SEAL website said, so you've got to believe it. <laughs> Part of the training is called Hell Week. Forgive me if that offends you. Listen to how this week is described on the Navy SEAL website. It says, Hell Week consists of five and a half days of cold, wet, brutally difficult operational training on fewer than four hours of sleep. Hell Week tests physical endurance, mental toughness, pain and cold tolerance, teamwork, attitude, and your ability to perform work under high physical and mental stress and sleep deprivation. Above all, it tests determination and desire. On average, only 25% of SEAL candidates make it through Hell Week the toughest training in the U.S. military. Now, my understanding of it is that throughout that week, the trainees face the wrath of their trainers over and over and over again. Now, the thing that stuck out to me as I read about this week of training was the opportunity at any given time for those in training to stop, to quit. All they had to do was go and ring the bell. Ring the bell. When the pain, the, the physical, the emotional punishment got bad enough, all they had to do was ring the bell. It's a way out. And apparently about 75% of the people attempting to do Navy SEAL training do ring the bell. This is a way to save yourself all the pain, the torment, the, the torture that the rest of the training process would take. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's good or bad to ring the bell. I'm just saying that that is their opportunity 
to get out of the punishment that's taking place. Last week, we began a two-week series on the minor prophet Zephaniah. We're calling it God's Unchanging, dot, dot, dot. Now, for those who missed last, last week, we heard that Zephaniah is one of the least known prophets. And ultimately, what Zephaniah was doing was calling people of God to repent from their sins, the main one being worshiping things other than Yahweh. That's why last week we talked about God's unchanging demand for worship. Now, we mainly camped out in chapter 1, where we saw that 17 out of 18 verses pretty much spoke to how God would seek out, punish, demolish his own people for not turning from their sins. Remember verse 17 in chapter 1? God says, Because you have sinned against the Lord, I will make you grope around like the blind. Your blood will be poured into the dust, and your bodies will lie rotting on the ground. This was not a fun message for me to give from up here, and I would imagine it wasn't a fun message for you to hear from out there. In fact, I know it wasn't, because during formation hour, right after service, we reread chapter 1 together, and after rereading it with 17 out of 18 verses speaking of God's wrath, I asked the people that were sitting with me in the upper room, what did you like about that passage? And there was silence. There was some awkward shifting in their chairs, and nobody made any eye contact. So finally I said, hey, so-and-so, and and I won't list who this was, what did you like about that passage? And the response, nothing. Nothing. And almost immediately there was nods of affirmation like, yeah, we didn't like anything either. Hearing of God's wrath. God's punishment for God's people who don't take his view on sin seriously is not a fun message. If you remember, we did catch just a glimmer of hope last week. A glimmer of God's mercy. We saw this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where God said, Hey, gather, gather together. Act now, he said. In verse 3, he says, Seek the Lord, all who are humble. Follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you. Protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. This was the glimpse of hope. Though maybe through a dimly lit mirror, as the Apostle Paul may have said. So we had that glimpse of hope in those three verses, but just as quick, if we were to jump into verse 4 and beyond, God returns to the same theme. Zephaniah chapter 2, the rest of it, the prophet singles out three nearby nations, Philistia, Moab, and Ammon, and then two distant nations, Ethiopia and Assyria. Now God singled out these nations for condemnation, and their locations at all four points on a compass seem to suggest that these nations represented all of the world's nations. See, Philistia was in the west, Moab and Ammon in the east, Ethiopia in the south, and Assyria in the north. It's as if, through the prophet Zephaniah, God is warning the entire world of his judgment, of his wrath. Now, I won't go into the specific reasons that each nation was, uh, was receiving God's condemnation to the, to the grievous sins that they had committed, but let me just paint some broad strokes 
Each of these nations had taunted Israel. They had mocked Israel. They had invaded Israel's borders. They were prideful. They scoffed at God's people. They were boisterous in ways that were not good. This does not sound good, does it? Go ahead and shake your head. Does not sound good. There's a part of me, and maybe, maybe I could even say there's a part of the Christian culture that, that would, we'd like to see behavior like that punished. Right? We'd like to see God come and lay the smack down. I even kind of heard it last week for there being a desire for us to witness God reaching down his mighty thumb and squashing groups like ISIS. Oh, what great joy that would bring us to see God's wrath, right? These people aren't God's people, so smite them. But if we have that heartbeat, we need to keep reading in chapter 3, where we go out of chapter 2, which is talking about not God's people, into chapter 3, which is once again talking about God's people. The beginning of chapter 3, the prophet is talking to Zephaniah. Excuse me, the prophet Zephaniah is talking to Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judah, the city where God met humanity, where the presence of God dwelt in the temple. This is the city of God and the people of God living in a city that was no better than the nations that had just gotten verbally whooped. In fact, let me paint some broad strokes of how Jerusalem was acting. They were rebellious, polluted, violent, criminals, refusing correction, not trusting the Lord, leadership that was like roaring lions, like ravenous wolves. They were arrogant liars, and they disobeyed God's instructions. This is not a good list, is it? You can shake your head no to this one too. It's not a good list. Hear it from God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. What sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime? It says the oppressive city. No one can tell it anything. It refuses all correction. She does not trust in the Lord or draw near to its God. Its leaders are like roaring lions hunting for their victims. Its judges are like ravenous wolves at evening time who by dawn have left no trace of their prey. Its prophets are arrogant liars seeking their own gain. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. This is the city of God. It's people, it's leadership. During the time of Zephaniah, this was not good. Let's look a little bit closer at this. Verse 1, Jerusalem is called an oppressive city. God had warned his people about that. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, God says, You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. That's verse 1. Verse 2, Jerusalem chose not to listen to God. God had warned his people about this too. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 45, God says, If you refuse to listen to me, to the Lord your God, and obey the commands and decrees that I have given you, all these curses will pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed. 
Verse 62, same chapter. Though you become as numerous as the stars in the sky, few of you will be left because you would not listen to the Lord your God. Let's stay in verse 2. Jerusalem did not listen to God because Jerusalem did not trust God. It's funny because about 500 years earlier, one of Israel's greatest kings, you know him as King Solomon, penned an oft-quoted proverb. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Jerusalem was not doing that. God had warned them about that. Still in verse 2, it says, Jerusalem did not draw near to its God. In the Old Testament, the phrase draw near is used 158 times as a technical expression for worship. So Zephaniah is saying that Jerusalem failed to worship God, which of course ties in directly with what we talked about last week in God's unchanging demand for worship. That's all in verse 2. Let's move to verse 3, where Zephaniah speaks to Jerusalem's civil leadership. Just read it. It says its leaders are like roaring lions, hunting for their victims. Its judges are like ravenous wolves at evening time who by dawn have left no trace of their prey. Ravenous wolves. We hear this a few other times in Scripture. In fact, this is how God describes the Babylonians who would later overtake Judah. In Habakkuk chapter 1, God says the Babylonians are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. And the Apostle Paul used a similar phrase in the book of Acts. He said, I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come along after I leave, not sparing the flock. Ravenous wolves is not a good way to be described, and yet that's how Zephaniah describes the civil leadership in Jerusalem. So how does he describe the spiritual leadership? Verse 4, its prophets are arrogant liars seeking their own gain. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. Let's just look at that. Disobeying God's instructions. Did these priests not know the stories of Aaron's son, the first high priest? who when they intentionally disobeyed God's instructions and burned incense the wrong way, God sent fire down from heaven and burnt them to a crisp. Did these priests not know those stories? I mean, we could say in the days of Zephaniah, leadership of Jerusalem, why? Why do you act like this? Some 650 years later, a Galilean carpenter would overlook the city of Jerusalem and he'd lament at how it was acting. Do you see why God was going to bring down his wrath on Judah? Do you see why he was going to punish his people? Verse 5 says, But the Lord is still in the city, and he does no wrong. Day by day he hands down justice, and he does not fail. So you would think with God's presence in the city handing down justice, people would change, right? Wrong. They didn't. And they didn't feel at all bad about it. 
The end of verse 5 says, but the wicked know no shame. They know no shame. There was another prophet named Jeremiah who was a contemporary of Zephaniah, which means he was preaching and proclaiming and prophesying during the time of Zephaniah to the same people that Zephaniah was prophesying to. And listen to what he says. Jeremiah chapter 8. He says, yes, even my prophets and priests are like that. They are all frauds. They offer superficial treatment for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of these disgusting actions? Not at all, he says. They don't even know how to blush. You see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, this is the prophet Zephaniah speaking to and speaking about the city of Jerusalem. And what he was saying is God's wrath is coming. God's pain is coming. Deservedly so, yet we all admit it's not easy to hear. Pain, punishment, wrath. Now you may be thinking, Pastor, you told us at the beginning that your sermon's called God's unchanging salvific provision. Where is that? We're in danger of thinking the same thing we were thinking last week. I don't like this. Where's God's opportunity to ring the bell, to get out? I told you the first five verses of chapter 3 was Zephaniah speaking to the city of Jerusalem. Let's listen to God speaking to the city of Jerusalem, and we'll see if he gives some salvific opportunity. Verse 6 and 7 of chapter 3. God says, I have wiped out many nations, devastating their fortress walls and towers. Their streets are now deserted. Their cities lie in silent ruin. There are no survivors, none at all. I thought, surely they will have reverence for me now. Surely they will listen to my warnings. Then I won't need to strike again, destroying their homes. But no, they get up early to continue their evil deeds. Did you catch God's unchanging salvific opportunity in there? It's in verse 7. It's in the surely Listen to it again. He said, surely they would have reverence for me now. Surely they will listen to my warnings and then I won't need to strike again. Let me tell you something, First Church. It's not like Jerusalem woke up and decided to have a bad day. It's not like they were in this, this short season of a rebellious streak. This type of behavior had been going on for years and years and years. What you see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, it's become the norm. I mean, you look, you look at the, which you can't see because it's so little, but you look at this timeline, and uh, the northern kingdom was, was beaten, was taken over in 722 B.C. And if you remember from last week, I said that Zephaniah preached right around 630, 625 B.C. So that's about 100 years difference. You, you would figure that when the northern kingdoms got taken over by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom, Judah, would have said, huh, I wonder why that happened. Let me see. Maybe they weren't repenting. Maybe they weren't doing what God asked them to do. Maybe we should change. But another 100 years passed. 
Now, maybe since they don't have email and cell phones, maybe they didn't hear about what took place in the northern kingdoms. But what they should have done is listen to what God had spoke to the prophets in their own history for the previous 220 years, from Zephaniah to Micah to Joel to Obadiah. For 220 plus years, God had been saying, you've got to change. You have got to listen. You've got to gather, repent, humble yourself, and seek the Lord. Hundreds of years of God saying, you want an opportunity to ring the bell? Here it is. I'm speaking it to you again and again and again. Not like the people of Jerusalem weren't warned. I I told you that Jeremiah was a contemporary of Zephaniah. So listen to what he told the same people in Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 13. While you were doing these wicked things, says the Lord, I spoke to you about it repeatedly, but you would not listen. I called out to you, but you refused to answer. Later in that same chapter, verse 25 and 26. From the day your ancestors left Egypt until now, God says, I have continued to send my servants the prophets, day in and day out. But my people have not listened to me or even tried to hear. They have been stubborn and sinful, even worse than their ancestors. Jeremiah chapter 11. For I solemnly warned your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, obey me. I have repeated this warning over and over to this day. Let's keep going in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people in Judah and Jerusalem for the past 23 years, from the 13th year of the reign of King Josiah, son of Ammon, until now the Lord has been giving me these messages. I have faithfully passed them on to you, but you have not listened. Jeremiah chapter 26. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you will not listen to me and obey my word that I have given to you, and if you will not listen to my servants, the prophets... For I sent them again and again to warn you, but you would not listen to them. Then I will destroy. Shall I keep going? Because he says the same thing in chapter 29, in chapter 32, in chapter 35, in chapter 44. God has offered countless opportunities for his people to repent. Countless. Maybe we talk about something we can connect with, okay? Because that was a long time ago. If you've ever had any sort of experience with kids, whether you have some of your own, whether you've watched them, whether you've sat next to them in church, if you ask a kid to do something and they don't, the first time you use it as a teachable moment. It's a nice way to say it. If you ask the kid to do the exact same thing again a second time and they don't, you think, huh, maybe a little bit of discipline, and let's reinforce the teachable moment. If you ask that kid to do the same thing a third time and they don't, by then your blood's starting to boil and you're thinking, this is belligerence, this is disobedience. Ah, right? Imagine how God was feeling upon hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years with his chosen people, with his children. God gave countless opportunities to his people to turn back. Yet, do we see them change? The end of verse 7. But no, they get up early to continue 
their evil deeds. So what does God do? Verse 8. Therefore, be patient, says the Lord. This is not like a comforting be patient. This is, you just wait till your dad gets home. Therefore, wait, says the Lord, because soon I will stand and accuse the evil nations. For I have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger on them, my fury on them. All the nations of the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. All the nations, not just Jerusalem, not just his chosen people, all the nations. i got to be honest, as I read this, as I'm studying specifically chapter 3 this week, I was a little bit frustrated. God, come on, verses 1 to 7 were about your people. Your people. And now you're talking about gathering the entire world? That seems a little bit unfair. But then as soon as I said that, I was reminded of chapter 2. Where God said, look to the east, look to the west, look to the north, look to the south. Ammon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Ethiopia. God was addressing the entire world. God was addressing me. As I pondered that, I decided, let's, let's just keep going in this text. Let's see what's next. Let's see what, if any, opportunities God has given for salvation. You see, in verse 9, it begins, then. Then. This means after the purging, the cleansing, the wrath is complete. Verse 9 and 10. God says, then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. My scattered people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, they will come to present their offerings. And what's cool about this verse is that God here is beginning by showing that all peoples, that's Gentiles, that's us, all people will be able to worship him. There's that theme again. Worship, verse 9, then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. Now what will this look like? Verse 11, on that day you will no longer need to be ashamed. For you will no longer be rebels against me. I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness on my holy mountain. Did you catch that? God said, hey, I'm going to remove anybody who didn't listen to chapter 2, verse 3. Where he says, humble yourself. Seek God. Did you catch it? I'm going to remove all the proud and arrogant. Verse 12, those who are left will be the lowly and the humble, for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. Here's the opportunity to ring the bell again. Once again, God is saying, here's a salvation opportunity. This is what I'm going to do to the nations, and this is what I'm going to do to the nations, and here's your opportunity. Repent, gather, seek, be humble. In verse 13 and following, it specifically mentions the remnant of Israel. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time, I'm not going to get too hung up on who exactly that is. But what I want to do is I want to read to you from the mouth of God 
what he says. Because we've just spent all of last Sunday's sermon and three-fourths of this Sunday's sermon hearing about the wrath of God. So let's listen to his unchanging salvific provision. Verse 13 and following. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. All your troubles will be over, and you will never again fear disaster. Verse 16, on that day the announcement to to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With His love, He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Isn't that beautiful? God Himself living amongst His people. Being mighty to save. Taking delight in them. Calming their fears with His love. Rejoicing over them. That is beautiful. And let me remind you to who God is doing this. Verse 12. Those who are left will be the lowly and humble, for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. Now, verse 12 isn't the only one that talks about the who that will be experiencing this. Verse 18 through the end of the, of the, the prophecy, God says, I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will be disgraced no more. And I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and the helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth. As I restore your fortunes before their very eyes, I, the Lord, have spoken. As I read this, it's funny because I'm not mentally picturing the conquering heroes that God is saving and living amongst. Not the people who thought they could do it on their own, but the weak, the lowly, the ones that Jesus talks about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You guys know these. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Verse 11, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. 
When I read the end of Zephaniah chapter 3, I'm reminded that the remnant he's talking about is not a remnant of all the amazingness of all peoples. You know, the conquering, the heroes. It's, it's the broken, the mocked, the persecuted, the shamed, the outcast, the downcast. As Jesus said, those who realize their need for God. It's these people that God will restore their fortunes. And it's because they knew that they didn't deserve God. They couldn't do it on their own. They realized it. So they rang the bell. They came to God for His unchanging salvific provision. Now, when we get to heaven, I'm confident that God's going to be high-fiving John Wesley and B.T. Roberts and, uh, and Billy Graham. I think he's going to enjoy them. But I think that God's really going to glory over, as verse 17 says, he's going to glory over the broken mom who was not raised in a Christian home but found Jesus. She never preached a sermon. She never led a Sunday school class, but she spent her days crying out to God, trying to figure out what it meant to be a follower of Christ and still trying to figure out how to put food on the table for her kids. I've got to think that Jesus is going to sing over those whose names we have never heard. They're the ones who quietly went through life bringing others to Jesus saying, let's figure out what it means to follow him together. Planting groups of people following Jesus but not getting their names in Relevant Magazine or in Christianity Today. Their stories may never be told on the CBS Evening News. God is going to glory over the truly homeless not the one who's holding a sign saying, I need your money so I can buy alcohol and weed. And by the way, God bless. He's going to truly glory over the babies who at night are crying out because they don't know where their dad is and if he's coming home. He's going to glory over people who were led to slaughter and did not make the internet headlines. God's going to glory over the widow or the widower who faithfully followed him for 40 or 50 or 60 years with their spouse and then their spouse died and instead of being frustrated with God, they just continued to hang on to him. God is going to glory over those who realize their need for him. They realize their need for him. I don't care if we're making 300000 a year. If we realize our need for him, God's going to glory over us. There will come a day when these people's names are in lights. They will have the names of distinction. They will receive God's salvific opportunities. Even in the Old Testament, this God of judgment, this God of wrath, is a God who provides salvation opportunity time and time again. And you get to the New Testament. And we see that this God is one and the same. God still offers salvation opportunity, and He still requires us to gather, to turn, to repent, to humble ourselves. This salvation requires us to ring the bell of life and say, I can't take it anymore, Lord. I cannot make myself right with You. You have to do this. I'm broken, I'm humble, and I'm crying out for mercy. Jesus Christ, this Galilean carpenter who lamented over Jerusalem, laments over you and I. He beckons us, sometimes over and over and over 
again. Will we listen? One of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, was speaking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem when he said this, Acts chapter 4. He said, For Jesus is the one referred to in the Scriptures where it says the stone that builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. God's unchanging salvific opportunities today comes in Jesus Christ and Him alone. His life and His death to atone for our sins. Paul wrote about this in Romans. He says, Since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. I could probably count on one hand and in the last nine years how many times I've done what we often call as an altar call. I'm going to do something like that this morning. We're going to take communion together. And this is a remembrance ceremony of uh, what Jesus told us to do to remember Him by. His broken body, his, His blood for us. If you have committed your life to Christ, if you are following Christ, I invite you to come to the front, take the bread, dip it into the cup, and celebrate the salvation that Jesus has offered you. If you have never taken that step of faith, if you've never said, Jesus, I need you, I can't be made right in God's sight without you, I need to accept the offer you have for salvation. If you've never done that and you want to do that, get in the same line of those coming up to take communion. And instead of taking it, come right over here. I'll be sitting on the side and just talk to me. We'll figure out how to start this relationship. Okay? It's not going to be easy, but it's something that God wants us to do. If you're not following Christ... And if you're perfectly content, if you have no intention at all of changing, but you're content living like the people described in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 3, verse 8, I'm going to ask you not to come up. I don't want to make any sort of display of you. I don't want to seem like I'm being, you know, separating of people, but I want you to know that the choices you're making have both present and eternal consequences. Hear me, please. This, this isn't a scare tactic. Okay? I don't want to scare you into making a decision that you don't want to make. I just want to give you opportunity to accept God's salvation. So I'm going to pray. And then I'd like the worship team to come. You guys take communion first, and then I'll have you sing that song that you finished with. Now as they're singing, just take a moment. Examine your heart. When you're ready, come to the front. Again, I'll be sitting right over here if anyone wants to talk about their relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that this week I'm thankful for the end of Zephaniah, for the promise that you will sing over, you will glory over, you will live amongst those who realize their need for you. And I thank you, Lord, that we can be at any stage in our life any stage financially, any, any stage age-wise, any stage of faith, as long as we realize that need and come to you humble, you'll give us salvation. And through Christ, we will be saved from your condemnation.
I thank you for that. And yet, Lord, even in that, I'm thankful for the reminder that you take sin seriously and that you want us to turn. You want us to to come back to you. Lord, this morning as we take the bread and the juice, I ask that you would bless it. Remind us that the bread is your broken body. Remind us the blood is, or the cup is your shed blood. Remind us that we do this to remember you. And Lord, we ask that it would nourish us physically, but spiritually as well. And God, we ask that if you're weighing heavy on anyone's heart, if they're sensing their sin and they want to turn from it, we ask that that you would prod them enough to where they would make that choice this morning. We love you. We love the fact that you love us enough to hold us to the fire. And you love us enough to save us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.